0: Welcome to the Final Draft podcast. Hi, my name is Andrew Popel. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Zoya Patel. Now, here at Final Draft, we are all about books, writing, and literary culture. Uh, The podcast emerges from a show called Final Draft. It broadcasts from the studios of 2 scr 107.3, a little radio station here in Sydney, Australia. And at Final Draft, we're all about exploring Australian writing. Be be it authors. Or classics, the people that you know and love. Each of these conversations, it's a chance to look at the issues that are driving the author's storytelling. It's a way to discover more from these books that you love, the future classics. <laughs> these are the stories that make us who we are. And I, I always really want to interrogate, like, what we learn from them. Now, 2 SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I, uh, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands. I want to pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. And as I said, uh, Zoya Patel is joining me today. Um, Zoya, she is a writer, she's a commentator, she is just an incredible person to chat to. If you're a long term fan of the show, you would have caught uh, a conversation we had a few years back when she was a judge of the Stella Prize. It is so exciting to have her here today with her debut novel, Once a Stranger. I am. Um, I I really got a lot out of this book. This is a book about identity, about culture, about family. I'm really excited to bring it to you. I'm not going to say any more, though. I want to let Zoya do all the talking. So please join me as we discover Zoya Patel's Once a Stranger. I'm Andrew Popel. It is my pleasure to be welcoming to the show today Zoya Patel. Zoya is a writer, a communications professional. She's the founder of feminist arts and literature journal Feminazi. She has been the chair of the Stella judging panel in 2021. Her debut book, No Country Woman, was a collection of memoir essays critically acclaimed, but today she is joining us with her first novel. It is called Once a Stranger. Zoya, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. I, um, I love chatting with you. We've chatted in the past and I loved Once a Stranger. So, that's like two good reasons why this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Can I introduce the narrative? So, Ayat's mother is dying. It's been six years since the two have been together. A rift seemingly impossible to heal. But now, Ayat has received a call from her sister, Layla. Their mother doesn't have long to live and somehow they must reconcile to reunite as a family. So, I wanted to keep it really simple. Like, I feel like the emotional punch just in this idea of the separation and the need to come back together is, is so much of the narrative impetus for Once a Stranger. Was that where it started for you? Like, where did, where did these characters sort of come into life?
1: It's such a good question and something that I actually have struggled to articulate um, in the lead up to this book being released, because this funny thing happens when you have written memoir and then you write fiction and people are, you know, they kind of assume that it's come straight out of your real life. And to some degree, there are elements of this story that did. So like Ayat and Layla, I grew up as the child of immigrants to Australia. I was born overseas as well. And my parents are Indian and Muslim. Um, And like them, I also grew up with some expectations around our cultural lives and the way that we would live as adults and who we would spend our lives with. So, you know, the expectation of an arranged marriage was very um, present in my life. And like Ayat, I found love with a non-Indian man. So I've been with my partner for a long time now and he's white Australian And so I think the original kind of premise of the book, this idea of this conflict um, that happens for Ayat because she chooses to step outside of her cultural norms and that's what causes the estrangement from her mother and her sister, Um, I'd kind of lived through a version of that and I wanted to explore it because I knew that there were very few stories like this about that immigrant experience in Australia out there. And I knew that firsthand because when I was going through things like this, or even just growing up, knowing that there was this kind of gap between my cultural life and um the identity and expectations of my family, I couldn't find narratives that reflected that experience back to me. So I think it actually started more from the emotional punch of the separation. And I used Cathedra's illness as I guess a device to force that coming back together because Cathieja um, as a character is a very proud woman um, and quite um, immovable. And I wanted to force her to reconcile um, with her daughter in a way that I don't think she would have otherwise. Mm.
0: I want to, like, I really want to get into, um, I guess, the way that comes out in the plotting and the way it comes out in the dynamic between the characters. But if I can just pick up on something you said there about that that sort of tendency for people to identify, especially you've, you've written memoirs. so. I mean, memoirs all about, uh, they, they're going to identify you. But it strikes me that it, it is a, a hazard of the job when you're a writer. People are going to uh, start to say, who are you in this book? But, but also, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure people aren't asking Stephen King about his past as a killer clown. Like, Is there something inherent to certain types of writing that maybe invite comparison or identification in maybe not a helpful way?
1: Absolutely. And I'm glad that you picked that up because something that I felt really strongly is that when you're writing about culturally diverse characters and you're a culturally diverse person, there is this automatic assumption that you must be writing from lived experience. And I've always found that so curious because growing up reading and writing, I felt the need to have diverse characters in everything that I wrote. And you know, I'm saying this as a kid who like, wrote a lot of Harry Potter fan fiction and, you know, wrote a lot of fantasy um, when I was younger. And I was always putting, you know, characters of colour into my work, not because I wanted to write myself into the narrative, but because I needed to represent the world that was around me. And, you know, I'm not just surrounded by white people. I'm not a white person myself. And, it always felt like to live a big life according to the culture that I consumed, I needed to be white because I didn't get to see that otherwise. And if there's a culturally diverse character in a piece of pop culture, usually their diversity is like the fundamental thing about their character, right? Um, I've written before about, um, characters in shows like Gilmore Girls. Lane Kim is this, you know, Korean girl, but her entire character is about her Koreanness mm. and how that impacts her life. So, you know, of course, I'm always going to write about culturally diverse characters because that's what I'm interested in. But I can't only write about my experiences because, frankly, I don't have enough to to fill the number of books that I'd like to write into the future. So it, I do think that it's something that people assume because of that obvious connection uh, between me and the identities of my characters. But I think it's a result of there not being enough diversity across fiction and literature in the mainstream And that's why that feels like the obvious link, Mm -hmm. whereas, you know, I don't actually think that the books that I write in the future will be as closely related to my personal life. This one's interesting because it's the first novel I ever wrote, and I wrote it so long ago. So, you know, when I was writing this book, it felt like a really urgent and necessary story to tell. But I can guarantee you that, you know, the works that I'm working on at the moment have no resemblance to my life, but I will always be writing diversity into the pages.
0: Mm. And it feels like what you were saying there is is a common thread for writers writing from a non dominant culture perspective. Um, writers uh, living with a disability, writing about a character with a disability, um, often find that you know people focus in on that being the simple the, the raison d'etre of their of their writing. I want to. I maybe want to come back to this, but I I did enjoy the way. Towards the end of the book, you, ex- I, th- I felt like you were maybe experimenting with putting a white character, um, in a position where their whiteness was kind of the purpose of their their being, and that's because we haven't fully realised who this character is. Where maybe we can come back to it, but I, I feel like that's not something we see um, narratives focusing a white person and their story is about their whiteness, and it, it would be really interesting to um to explore.
1: You know what's interesting about that? So that character is pretty much the only white character in the book who has any kind of airtime. So we're talking about Harry, who is Ayat's mm-hmm. partner. Um, and he's the reason why she's been separated from her family for so long. And they've, you know, they've built this beautiful relationship together, but her cultural background, and her family have been this kind of looming like ghost in the room, this thing that causes conflict and, um, is obviously really hard for him because he's never experienced any kind of discrimination on the basis of his skin colour before, right? Now he's coming across these people who are like, we don't accept you because you're white, which is pretty mind boggling experience. And I know, you know, early in my own relationship, we talked about this a lot because walking around as an interracial couple out in the world, we would often get some pretty negative feedback from complete strangers and usually other South Asians who would um, make remarks or even just like look at us in a certain way, et cetera. And my partner was always like, whoa. And I was like, oh, you haven't had racism before. Like, that's what this is. Um, so what's funny about it, though, in terms of the book, is the very first version I wrote of this book had a whole plotline for Harry. Mm-hmm. So he was like a third perspective or a fourth perspective throughout the whole book. And it just didn't work. And I remember writing it being like, oh, why doesn't this feel right? Um, and then I worked on it with my editor. And I think we realized that to really give the kind of impact of his story um, or his position within the story, we almost needed to not have that internal life of his because he he acts as a symbol in the book. And you're right, towards the end of the book, you know, he is put into a position where he's the minority. And you get to kind of see that um, the role reversal there, I guess. And it gives a bit of weight to the experience of these three women who have been living in a country um, where they're the minority, you kind of see that reversal and, and the flip. And I think part of the reason why I wanted to do that was because I wanted readers who were reading this book who don't have an experience of marginalisation themselves to be able to just do that mental flip and try and see it from the other side.
0: Yeah, I apologise. I did not mean to, to centre Harry um in in this way, right at the beginning of the conversation, I will, like oh, no. I will. I think just, it's
1: fascinating. Mm. So I actually, yeah, I really I, like. I, I meant to centre
0: him later in the conversation. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> I will note though, like when you're talking about sort of either either bald faced or passive racism, there you refer to negative feedback, like you were getting Google reviews. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know what? I think that might be a cultural thing because I do feel like it's practically the same as a Google review. Like it's a, actually, I love that. I'm going to use that all the time. I feel like operating in the Indian community, um, you're kind of like constantly getting a rating from your aunties and your uncles and your cousins. Um, so that's, I love that. I love that idea.
0: One out of 10 would not recommend the new boyfriend. No, um, <laughs> yeah. 10 out of
1: 10 um, has followed all of our rules. Two out of 10, disappointment to family.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Let's let's jump in, and I want to start at the beginning. You begin uh, Once a Stranger with Ayat in Turmoil. She's received an email from her sister, and she doesn't know how to proceed after so many years. They've been separated. There have been so many times that she has wanted to reach out, but she felt she couldn't. And we're immediately in this moment where Ayat, she doesn't know what to do. I feel like for so many readers, they're going to read this. They're going to have a sense, maybe understand this idea of estrangement, but also maybe not what Ayat is feeling. What you're showing us, you're showing us a woman who has been severed from her family. By consequence, she's adrift from her culture. She feels adrift in her world. Uh, Is there any way you can even give us, you know, sort of an entry level on, you know, what that might mean outside of just, oh, we haven't spoken
1: Yeah, and I think it's something that you kind of grow an understanding of as you get further into the book, because part of what makes it so unique is that by virtue of being migrants and and coming to this country, when Layla and I were children, the bond that they have as a family is more close and more significant um, than it might have been had they not had that kind of feeling of displacement, because early on in their lives, all they really had was each other. Um, And, you know, they move to a small town, they suffer racism and the bonds as as a family that they create are really a way of kind of um, bolstering each other, giving the children a sense of security and certainty. And that becomes so important that when it breaks and it's not there, it's like being completely adrift. Like so much of Ayat's identity is, you know, something that was created in reflection of her mother and her sister and and the lives that they had together and it's made even more significant because by virtue of being indian and muslim and and some of the cultural protectiveness that their mother has leila and Ayat have really not had the kind of networks and um and social lives that other young people would have so a lot of what they have grown up with a lot of their coming of age has been directly with each other and with their mother so that kind of split, and it happens gradually as well, you know, like you gain independence gradually over time. And then when the final kind of split happens, I already have been feeling the sense of dissonance from her cultural life and, and the life that she's leading outside of the home. So that split when it happens feels like a very, you know, decisive, firm break. Like there's no coming back from that. So the idea of then trying to re-enter that space to to kind of reach out to her sister um, and her mother after this much time of not speaking when you go from being that close to being that far apart it's you know it's, it's excruciating it's really hard to imagine
0: mm. and and aya and Layla they grew up feeling different as children of migrants or migrants themselves in a predominantly white i mean they it's Wogger that they first um, live, and so they're not seeing people who look like them. When it comes time to to characterise, when it comes time for I to meet Harry's parents for the first time, she reflects on her trepidation and she says, even if people weren't actually racist, they still didn't necessarily expect their own lives to closely intersect with someone like her. And I wondered about that, just that constant pressure, and you really drive it home when, later in the book, the family... Return. They visit. Khadija wants to see, um, you know, the places that she's grown up in India. And Ayat talks about just not a feeling so much as the the absence of that feeling of pressure, like something has been lifted off her. What do you see as as that pressure? Like, how does that influence these young people growing up to be both so similar but so different?
1: It's a very unique experience, and it's something that I remember. Kind of understanding more as I got older and reflected on my parents because I remember being young a child and you know I've been in Australia since I was three and I remember saying to my parents they'd say you know Fiji which is where we're from is home we're Fijian Indian and I'd be like Australia's home I don't know what your problem is but can we just like agree that we live in Australia Australia is home I'm Australian and I was really kind of firm on this identity it wasn't until I got to the age where my parents were when they moved to Australia that I realized that for them, Fiji will always be home. Their identity will always be Fiji and Indian. Similar to if I move from here, I'll always be Australian, right? Like Mm. there's no shifting of that. And so I feel like part of what's kind of a, a constant feeling that you have when you're a person of color, especially if you're like me or like Ayat and Layla, who have grown up in this country, but are always physically and visibly different to the mainstream is you kind of have this discombobulating sense sometimes where you're living your life, you feel really normal, and then you're like, whoa, I'm not like everyone else. Like I remember as a teenager seeing my reflection, I'd be at the shops with my friends, and then I'd see my reflection and be like, I'm the only non-white person here. Mm. And a lot of my kind of networks, I would be the only non-white person, or there would be me and one or two others. I remember literally having two friends who were also from culturally diverse backgrounds, and we used to hang out together, and we called ourselves the small brown literary ladies because we all wrote, but we were the only non-white friends that each other had for a while there. So I think part of what it does to you over time is you internalize this sense of almost like defensiveness. Like there's a part of me that was always a bit like people are um, by and large fine um, with me being different. And I've had a really good experience with, um, you know, really strong community um, networks in Australia, but Every so often someone won't be and every so often there'll be an incident of racism and it really jolts your identity when you're not expecting it. And so I think you're always on guard. And then when I go and visit countries where I'm not the minority, where, you know, I remember going on a trip recently with my mum and my sister to Malaysia and the, the kind of relief you have of just being like, oh, like that's not part of this experience is actually quite It's hard to describe. It's quite liberating. And there are other things that kind of come up. Like, you know, I remember being over there and um, realizing that as soon as people do know that you're a foreigner, it does kind of change things. So even when we go to India, we try really hard to not like display how foreign we are because then you start getting ripped off on like taxi fares and food. And my parents would always be like, just speak in Hindi. And I'd be like, oh, I'm not very good at it. Like, And I remember once my mom was walking down the street in India. I think I put this in the book even. She was like walking down the street, we're in India and a shop assistant, when we went into the shop, was like, you're not from here. And she's, you know, beautiful, perfect Indian. She was like, how would you know that? And he said, when you were walking, you were lifting up your trousers so that they didn't touch the street and like the cowpats and things on the street. And um, Indian locals don't care about that. (laughs) And I remember being like, it comes out, right? Like no matter how hard you try and hide it, it comes out. And I think that's true of like being the person of colour in Australia. No matter how Australian you get, it's always... Part of your identity and it's part of how other people see you. And it's the same thing sometimes when you go back home.
0: In the book, Ayat and Layla are so, so different. Um, and Ayat, sort of by virtue of the separation, but also she puts herself out in the world more than Layla. Layla is incredibly successful in her life, her academics, her career. But I wondered the. Their parents or at Khadija particularly, they characterize sort of the the similarities to their parents. Um, Layla personally narrativizes this as sort of a shyness or um you know where where I have mental blanked on the word for people who do not like getting out in the world. <laughs> introverts introverts yeah. <laughs> she characterizes herself as an introvert but I wonder is there a protective factor there is is Layla aware of the spaces that she can occupy and avoiding spaces where she will have that uh, difference uh, as a point of confrontation
1: yeah I think you're spot on there I think Layla is kind of protecting herself but also I feel like she's quite duty-bound mm. like she kind of sees her role as the eldest as being a supporter of her parents and as a result of that she she tries to live up to their expectations. And I think in Layla and I, I wanted to show the two different versions that I saw of, um, that experience of growing up as a migrant or as a child of migrants, because there were those two paths that I saw, even in just like, you know, people I saw at school, the other Indian girls that I grew up with. And I felt like I went in one direction. I was very much the Ayat where I was into counterculture. I wanted to do all of the, like, normal, quote unquote, normal teenage things. Like go to gigs, pierce my nose. Like, although I will say, um, facial piercings, Indian is totally fine with nose piercings. My parents let me get mine at 14. And I remember everyone else being like, whoa, hectic. Um, and they're like, finally, you're like ad- adhering to something in our cultural customs, get your nose pierced. Um, but you know, like, I feel like you either kind of rebel against all of those cultural expectations, um, or uh, much like a lot of the other girls that I grew up with, you're really proud of your cultural identity and you kind of, you hold that and it's something that you turn to as a source of comfort when you don't feel included. Mm. So where Ayat kind of tries to downplay her cultural difference for that inclusion, Layla says, well, I feel that inclusion and that sense of community somewhere else and I don't need that from the kind of Western world all the time. And I think that kind of... um the split between them is actually quite representative of, I think, two of the kind of core cool ways that people experience that diversity in real life. Um, but I also do think that the age is a big part of it because um, Indian families, certainly in my my experience, are quite hierarchical in terms of age. So as the older siblings, you have a lot more responsibility. Um, younger siblings uh, have a little bit more leeway. And I'm the youngest of four, so I speak from experience as someone who like generally kind of skipped out on chores and like rules and like you know all of the expectations my parents were like more heavy on my older siblings by the time they came to me um no one was really checking whether I was doing my homework let's put it that way
0: see I'm the oldest and I always thought my brothers got it easier because I'd already given my parents all the heart attacks it's just like oh Andrew survived that he he somehow didn't you know manage to get brought home in an ambulance I did No, that happened. That did happen once or twice. Um, But yeah, I thought that was that was where it was. Look, we're we're talking, or I'm talking, with a closeness to these characters, and I see that as as sort of a a product of your storytelling. The story is split between now and then. Um, It's also told from the perspectives of Layla and Ayat and their mother Khadija. I was curious about that. Why? What did that open up the story? I, I I and I say that because I could imagine a world where we are exclusively told the story from Ayat's perspective or where perhaps it's Ayat and Layla but Khadija's voice is separate. Was it always thus or um, how did the story open up for you that way?
1: I did originally start writing it thinking it would all be from Ayat's perspective, but the thing that I found was missing was the nuance to why her family have reacted the way that they did because I think it would be really easy to write the story from Ayat's perspective and kind of villainize her mother for not understanding and villainize her sister for not siding with her. Because the idea of choosing who you love is something that I think a lot of, you know, Western audiences would see as a no-brainer. Like how why is it your parents' um, you know, choice who you love? How how is that fair? You know, that kind of like knee-jerk reaction against arranged marriages and things like that. And I wanted to show that it isn't just this salacious thing where you know, we talk about arranged marriages and it's a scandalous, like, idea of this really archaic thing that happens in other countries. I wanted to show where those attitudes, um, why they're so entrenched, particularly in migrant communities. And I couldn't do that without showing the experiences of Layla and Khadija. But when I started, like, splitting between the now and then and trying to give that kind of backstory and that context to help people understand the characters. It made sense to me to also hold Cathedra aside a little bit. So there's actually only a couple of sections in the book where you see her perspective. I think there's like three. Um, and the reason why I did that was because she isn't a um a sharing kind of person. Like she's quite reticent and that's how she is. And that's very um, that's very on par with most kind of that, that generation of Indians, um, especially (coughs) living in different countries because you kind of hold everything in and you, you don't share stuff outside of the family and that's how that is. So I didn't want to, um, over egg it, I guess. Mm. I wanted to kind of like give her the opportunity to show where she was coming from in the most pivotal moment. So, um, it made sense to have a lot of Ayat and Layla and kind of switch between them and show their different approaches um, and I kind of reserved Khadija for where I thought she would make the most impact, but I wanted to show that she wasn't this cookie cutter, you know, harsh parent figure. There was more to her.
0: Yeah. I, I, definitely, I got a sense through, I guess both Aya and Layla looking at their mother, but also Khadija's own perspective that she felt in a way trapped. I mean, the, they had moved as a family to Australia for Ahmed's um, work, but after his death, she had stayed for her daughter's schooling for the opportunities that living in Australia might bring Khadija shes it's a it's a perspective and uh, i guess she's a character that i felt i could understand but maybe not holly um I, I wondered, you know, would I would I rebel against that? How would I? You know, it's very hard to put myself in that perspective, but would I perhaps suggest to myself that well, opportunities present in different ways? I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about this character that may seem, you know, very outside a lot of people's experience, and that duty and sacrifice that fuels her life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I always felt, particularly when I was kind of growing up and and going through some of the things that I and Layla went through as teenagers, I would look at the older generation in my community and I'd be like, why are you people like this? Like, why can't you just like lean into the culture we're in? Why aren't you wholly um, embracing all of the opportunities we have over here that are different? Because I really saw people, you know, like my mom and her friends and um, our aunts and uncles, Um, gravitating towards our community, going to, you know, functions where they could be with other Indian Muslims or Muslims in general and really finding community in that sense of um, cultural connection. Even when we moved to Australia and we lived in Albury, we had this big community of other Muslims of all different um, cultural backgrounds. And that was really the core kind of, um, I guess, like our our cultural inclusion came from that kind of cohort. Mm -hmm. And I did always find it a bit like, like, why? Um, And then as I've gotten older, I've been like more conscious of how important it was for for them to have that and have that connection to our culture and how hard it would be to just have to like leave all of that stuff in your home country and not be able to practice even just the day-to-day stuff that, um, you know, really fundamentally brings who you are to life. And so, Cathidja was interesting to me because she's grieving her husband. She has these two daughters she has to raise. And the risk associated with that, when you're trying to do the right thing as a Muslim parent and you have two daughters um, is quite significant, right? Like she's trying to like get the most out of their um, opportunity in Australia for them while also protecting them from all the things that could go wrong um, in her eyes. And I think I, she was so puzzling to me and I still don't feel like I fully know that character because I've never been in that subject position I still kind of struggle to fully understand it. but something that I kind of gained as I got older and spoke to my parents as peers rather than as a child and a um, and a parent is this insight into like why they came to Australia and what kind of went through their minds in those early years where they were kind of you know it's just this constant bombardment of difference and you know newness and not knowing what's going on and trying to bring it all together for your kids. And so I think that's kind of what I was trying to like show with Khadija is nobody, they don't have the answers, mm-hmm. but they're trying their best to kind of get the most out of the situation while also dealing with their own identity crisis, because it is really hard to be a new person in a new country. Um, and, you know, I've experienced that kind of by living overseas for a year myself. And I remember being surprised by how obsessive I was about Australianness. Like, while I was over there, I was like, in Australia, we do things this way. In Australia, we do things that way. And now I'm kind of like, oh, maybe if I had grown up in India or in Fiji, I'd be over here being like, well, Indians do it like this um, and relating to my parents more.
0: I feel like like we have we have such a fraught relationship with this idea of... Maybe like cultural authenticity, cultural cohesion versus cultural hegemony. Like you know, um, and I mean, Australia's not racist. You can't talk about racism, but you know, we we have these pejorative terms that get thrown around. Like um, uh, people will migrate and move into ethnic enclaves, and mm-hmm. somehow, like somehow, maintaining expressions of your identity is is a negative. And then, and I this is going to be a bit of a throwback. I'm not sure if you're going to remember this, but there was it was like a sort of an Aussie kind of pop punk song. I think it was the late '90s. Australia, don't become America. Cranky. I don't know if you remember it. We're not going to play it, but it was, and it, it was exactly. It was, you know, it was a punk song, so it was just the title repeated angrily multiple times. And you know, somehow, if we're defining ourselves against, you know, those great cultural imperialists, in America, it's okay to express your cultural identity. But when it's someone else doing it, um, no, perhaps they need to. Uh, What's the what's the polite word, Derriga, these days? Assimilate, yes, assimilate. Yeah. I was, yeah, you got to fit in. Um, it's a, it's a really fraught conversation where we we I, I think dominant culture white people are going to pick and choose.
1: Yeah, and I think you know I've always thought of assimilate as a dirty word because I grew up in that era. Mm. of Pauline Hanson's first time around um, mm. in the Senate, Senate or Parliament, I can't remember, but. You know, the word assimilate was thrown around a lot. And I knew even then, like as a child, I was like, mm, that's not you're not saying that because you actually mean what it means. Mm. You know, you're, you're talking about something else. And I think that pressure to try and like demonstrate that you're of here when you're um, visibly not white um, is really challenging. But something that I've noticed is different. You know, as I've kind of grown up and and realised where the privilege of having grown up in Australia comes in for people of colour, when I walk around in the world, because I dress a certain way, as in, like, I dress very normal um, in clothes that are quite clearly ordinary for Australians, yep. um, and I speak like this with this accent, very quickly people will switch to treating me like I'm just any other Australian, Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I go out into the world with my parents, I really notice the way that they're treated and it is different. Like I remember going with my dad when we were buying a house and he came and looked at every house that we were buying or looking at, um, which is really helpful because we knew nothing and he knew everything. Um, So it was great. He'd like go and jump on the floors and like climb into the ceiling cavity. Um, But real estate agents were often kind of rude to him and he has an accent um, and, you know, is quite clearly older. Mm -hmm. And they could be quite dismissive of him and kind of, Quite patronizing i used to watch this and i'd be like you guys are treating this guy like he's an idiot right like he's a multimillionaire." of all the people who you want to like court in this scenario he should be the one but there's this automatic thing of like if you don't demonstrate yourself as australian then there's this attitude of like othering that just happens Straight away, And so I feel like I I have like white adjacent privilege of like <laughs> just being able to emulate some of these like cultural, you know, <clears throat> markers of being whiter or more Australian or more assimilated. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of like really subtle casual racism that I think we all just kind of absorb and react to. But I do think that the more you're exposed to that, the more you feel a strengthening of your identity as not being Australian. Mm. So I really do think that that has an impact on how much, Um, people like my parents then really hold on to their pride in their Fijian, Indian, Muslim identity because that's, if you're going to be othered um, and associated with that anyway, it really makes it hard for you to absorb a sense of um, commitment to an Australian identity because people are just constantly telling you that you don't have that, you know, you don't get to own that.
0: I think it's, and it's that process of sort of unconscious absorption. It's, you know, people might sort of characterise it as, well, it's always been that way type thing that, Challenges the notion that well, that that we ever need to challenge it. That maybe there is something happening here. It it feels so baseline for people. Why why would we why would we ever look at it? Mm. I, I wonder if um that I actually really wanted to challenge that with myself um because I was really conscious. We touched on this before, but I was really conscious of the way I was leaning into Ayat's perspectives. In once a stranger, I found her to be quite reasonable. She was conciliatory. She she wasn't asking anyone to change completely for her. She simply wanted space to move. And I'm like, even as I say it, I'm like, you're you're using language that justifies Ayat's perspective. But I'm conscious that that is partly because her experiences more closely, not exactly, but more closely, mirror my own culturally. And I don't maybe have the knowledge, the understanding to appreciate where Khadija was coming from, why Layla is is so closely associating herself with her mum over her sister we've touched on a lot of these issues so far but i was really curious about whether you had that sense in the two-part question two-part questions are always a bit hard but um whether you were conscious of that and whether you felt a need to manage the reader's tension like the, the obvious tension that would arise
1: I mean, I think it's not hard to see that I also related to Ayat more and I probably made her more sympathetic. So I wouldn't kind of blame yourself for that Um, because she does have the most quote-unquote reasonable perspective, right? Like she's very much like, hey, who does it hurt if I love this person? Can't we just kind of you do you and I'll do me and can't we still have something together? But what I was trying to show with Cathedra is that when you – deeply fundamentally believe something like she deeply fundamentally believes Islam and her, her role as a parent within Mm. that doctrine, it's not an option for her to accept something that is unacceptable in the religion, right? Like there's no wiggle room for her because she has such a like strong, almost dogmatic belief Mm. in her religion. And I don't think that that's an easy perspective for people to relate to when they have a very kind of, like, secular, you know, atheist or agnostic attitude themselves or they don't follow the same religion. So, Do,
0: do you think it's important that they try to relate, though?
1: Not necessarily. I think, like, I wanted to show her perspective so that people are exposed to it, mm. um, but I don't necessarily think that, like, relating to each character equally um, is necessarily, like, a more genuine you know, attempt to connect with the book. Because I think in many ways, generationally, these are three women who are kind of showing the passage of time as well, right? Like, I, IT really represents progress because more and more, everybody does have to kind of meet each other halfway, um, especially when you are facing, you know, living a life in a culture that doesn't have the same reinforcing aspects, right? Like if I had been in India, if they had stayed in India and grown up in India, she would have happily had the arranged marriage because everyone around her would be doing the same thing. And this is how I always felt growing up. I was like, if we were still in Fiji, if we were in India, I would do whatever everyone was doing because I wouldn't have to constantly combat this like difference in life. Because when I see like peers and family members, et cetera, who've had arranged marriages and they're perfectly happy in their arranged marriages, the amount of explaining they have to do to just exist in the Australian kind of culture is significant. So for me, it's like I had this progress because that's where it naturally goes generationally with migrants is it changes, it evolves and like, You know, each generation has like a closer link to their um, adopted country than they did to their home country and that's normal. So I don't feel like there's anything um, short-sighted about relating to Ayaz because I think I wrote it deliberately in that way. And in a way, Layla and Cathedral are there to kind of show that there is more complexity to their perspectives than you might think because you will automatically relate to Ayaz, right? Like she's the more, she's definitely the perspective that seems to have the least negative impact on the others. Um, But yeah. And I think also I, in not having Cathedra represented as strongly throughout the book in terms of her perspective, it's harder to relate to her because you don't get that insight until later. And partly the way um, I wrote the ending, which is this final kind of flashback scene. And it's from Cathedra's perspective. I wanted to leave readers with that because I wanted them to kind of go away and think about all of the things that Cathedra did throughout the book and all of the ways that she kind of put her cultural expectations on her daughters in the context of how she was so driven to give them everything she could as a parent, raising them by herself in this new country. And I wanted that to sit with readers to kind of maybe trouble some of those perspectives a little bit, maybe make them rethink the way that they're related to that character. Um, but I think, yeah, it's kind of hard to do that without reading the book as a whole.
0: Yeah. And tilting those perspectives or maybe de- going deeper into them really got me thinking also about the men in the novel um and the way they I guess punctuate the, the 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 characters of the the women that they are attached to. We've got Ahmed is only part of the novel so briefly and he he kind of exists in the novel as an open question. Mm-hmm. Um what would his presence have meant I- in this whole situation? Well, we've got Harry, um, Ayat's partner, and Muhammad Layla's husband. They kind of occupy this... It's this weird sort of liminal zone of benign support. I actually sort of thought... I, I thought Muhammad was... I, I, I fell in love with him. He is so wonderful. And in a way, he was more than anything you could have put into um, the the POV of your um, n- narrators, he is the answer to everyone's criticism of arranged marriage. <laughs> but what what was important to you in crafting these supports and companions, particularly for Ayat and Layla?
1: I think you've um, absolutely kind of, like, summarised that. I oh, wanted Muhammad sorry. to trouble everybody's assumptions about arranged marriages, mm-hmm. and I wanted... Ahmed and Muhammad in particular to trouble the concept of the Indian patriarch, because if I had a male character, if, if Ahmed had lived, he would have dominated everybody's reading of the relationships. Right. And, and to be honest, if they followed their kind of like the stereotypical, but quite traditional um, structure of an Indian family, that probably would have been the case anyway. And I wanted to take that out of the equation because I felt like in a way that assumption that people have about Indian patriarchs and men in those kind of um, dynamics is not always wrong, but it's not always correct either because it robs the women of their agency. Kind of, it denies that perspective. And so I, I just lifted him right out as a kind of like, I don't want to deal with that Flip um, <laughs> put that over there. Um, whereas Muhammad, I wanted to show that actually the concept of a modern arranged marriage is very different to what people think a modern arranged marriage is, right? And when I'm talking about a modern arranged marriage, I mean like arranged marriages for people who are living in other countries like my family um, or arranged marriages in the parts of India that are very kind of um, globalized and modern. So in cities, in the middle classes, there are still things that happen in um, you know more rural areas um, for people living in poverty without the same kind of experience, um, sorry, the same kind of resources that are different. And I can't really speak to those, but I felt like Muhammad was a great example to show that like he's an educated, modern, contemporary, um, you know, young man who can relate to Layla on so many levels, even though they haven't lived in the same country. And he can come over to Australia and have a really like meaningful, rich Australian experience and contribute to our society and kind of live within, um, I guess, like a, a discourse that, feels really relevant and really modern Um, and that can all be the case while also having had an arranged marriage and coming over here from India. So I wanted him to both kind of show that and also show the like the positive, um, meaningful relationships that I've seen come out of arranged marriages. So Mm -hmm. in a way, Layla and Muhammad kind of modelled that to show that the alternative wasn't that bad. Um, It just wasn't what Ayat wanted So and that's okay. And then with Harry, I guess I wanted to show that His role um, in these relationships is to support Ayat and it's kind of not about him, but that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that it doesn't impact him. So particularly, um, you know, as we see the way that he engages with Cathedral over the years and like the way that he then um, tries to find a place within the family, I guess I wanted to show how he can be a supporting character in a narrative that isn't about him. You know, like Mm -hmm. he's a white man who has all the privilege in this situation, but actually that privilege doesn't help him when it comes to trying to negotiate this really complicated experience that has, you know, so much to it that he can't possibly understand or relate to. And I feel like he kind of models what I think people should try and do when facing this stuff. Like, you know, if you have a friend who's going through something that you can't relate to because it is tied up to their cultural difference, harry is how i think people should handle it um this kind of like i'm there i'm listening i'm here to support you um without placing any kind of like judgment um or inserting themselves into the dynamic um and in that way i guess he is like somewhat similar to my partner um people keep being like is is he chris and i'm like well i made them look different and i like made them slightly different but yes a lot of what i have written in harry are the things that i loved about my partner and how he handled everything when we were going through similar stuff, because he has just always been, and you know, he's loved by my family now, like big part of the family. Mm. Um, but that was only possible because he always came at things from this really empathetic understanding of what he can't know.
0: I am, um, I don't want to over egg Harry, but I feel exactly the same. I, he is, I, I could pull out, you know, his section and sort of hand that to male friends and be like, this is, this is what, we are being told when it's, you know, you don't solve the problem. No, sometimes you just listen, all of that, all of that. And Muhammad, I feel like you, you must be getting readers saying, where can I find a Muhammad? And you're thinking like, I literally put the website in there, guys.
1: I made that website up, but it exists. Like versions of that exist um, all over the internet. So
0: does Google. Um, People can Google. People can Google it.
1: Uh, you know, i read another book recently where there was a character in it. I don't know if you've heard of um, Honor by the I can't remember her surname, so I'll have to look it up. But she's this amazing um, American author, um, writes this book about Indian characters as well. And part of it said in almost all of it said in India, but there's an Indian man in that, um, Mohan, who was just like Muhammad. Like when I was reading this book, I was like, yes, like modern grown up in a city has um, economic privilege, but is really aware of that privilege in the context of his country, et cetera, et cetera. And I found it really reassuring because I was like, okay, cool, so I didn't make up this, like, version of um Indian masculinity that maybe doesn't exist because, frankly, I haven't been over there in a really long time. Mm. So I feel like he's quite reflective of, like, the contemporary um, experience for, and I will say, for, like, middle-class mm. Indian um, young people. Um, But I do I do think he's quite representative.
0: Yeah. It is only fair that we've sp- spent so much time on the characters. This is a, a character-driven novel. The characters are, by and large, wonderful, even when we're not agreeing with them. I, I am really curious about your writing. I I love the way you have realised this on the page. And so it, it made me think, it made me think as I'm reading and I'm still thinking about this, um, the story of Once a Stranger, it's so simple to encapsulate. Ayat finds out her mother is dying and she has a choice. They all have a choice about reconciling this six-year rift. And a story like that, the momentum of that, will seem to draw us in a certain direction I'm sure many readers will have the experience of feeling they know where you're going with this I'm not trying to spoil the ending here but I am interested in how you went about plotting that how you wanted to maybe manage some of those expectations some of that sort of narrative theory type stuff that tells us where this might end and also you know how you felt out the emotional rhythms as you were drawing the novel to a close.
1: I really wish I could say that I have some kind of like you know craft, based technique, um, of how I go about these things. But I'm one of those writers who just starts at the beginning and writes to the end. And I just figure out what's happening as I go, which actually meant that in the first draft of this book, which is quite different, I wrote myself right into a corner and then was like, Oh God, this isn't working. And had to like do this painstaking work. Like the two perspectives, how I go between now and then that wasn't in the original draft. I had to go back and put all the backstory in because it just wasn't working. And once I'd done that, I, I naturally just came to a conclusion and I was like, this, this is where it ends. This is where it just needs to stop. And it's interesting because I've had a few people say to me, like, it's a bit abrupt and I'm like, well, yeah, because you know, what's going to happen? Like there's only, you know, it's a, it's a disease that is terminal. There's an end that will happen, but we don't need to know that end to know the growth that these characters have kind of Mm. come to over the period of the narrative. So um, in some ways, I think I was probably letting myself off the hook a little bit by being like, and here we are, like, take this emotional ending. This is a conclusion to your journey, but like, you can imagine the journey as it goes forward. So I don't think I necessarily like thought from a like strategic perspective on how to kind of build that. Mm. Um, but I will say I've rewritten twice. So there have been two big rewrites of the book. Um, and each time we, we really like played with the um, logistics of the plot. So, Like where are they living? Do they move back to Canberra? When do they go to India? Like those types of things Mm -hmm. to try and give enough space to that emotional narrative that the characters could like realistically grow Mm -hmm. um, and change. So I think that actually was much more um, in the hands of my editors and their guidance um, than me necessarily doing that work. I think I was like, here's my thoughts. And they came in and were like, and they're good thoughts, but like, here's how we need to like massage that and adjust that. And I I honestly, it would not have the kind of consistency and pace without that editorial support. I think I did two structural edits on this before I I got to kind of a point where it felt right.
0: Terrific. Thank you for indulging that. I think- I think um, it's always really interesting. I'm always really fascinated. I I remember once upon a time I often wasn't interested in the ending of a novel unless it was, you know, like the big denouement, who is the killer type of thing. And now I find lately I'm just fascinated by how a novel ends because it's almost like, you know, it's the cliche of what happens next and writers being badgered for, you know, another chapter. But realistically that – Cutting off point is really going to determine so much of, I guess, the emotional legacy of any work.
1: You know what's interesting also? As you start writing and you kind of know roughly what a word count is, I find that I just like now I check the word count. I'm literally doing this with the work that I'm working on at the moment, where I'm like, all right, I've got probably like 5,000 words for this to get to like a good size. Mm. And so then I'm working backwards from there to be like, and this stuff has to happen before I can get to that. So I think like some of it actually comes down to these really banal, like mundane. Aspects where you're like, well, it can't be huge. It has to be like roughly this many thousand words. So let me just like make sure that everything fits in. It's um, stuff.
0: That, it's so much fun, but it can also. I feel like as you as you learn this and you get sort of, you, you can spoil things for yourself. Like I am now at a point where I can sort of pick up a book and be like, oh, it's two hundred and forty pages long. Well, let's look for the end of part one around page eighty, and yeah. and and when it happens, um, it is. You know, there's almost there's almost a sense of ah. Oh, do I need to keep reading? That was what I, that was one thing that fascinated me about Once a Stranger because I, you talked there about like you know the illness has uh, a logical conclusion that people you know we don't maybe we don't need to see that scene. But I, I think you may have thwarted some expectations of some people in the way you drew it to a close and maybe did leave us hanging a little bit. And, and, and for that, I appreciate it. Like I was watching the pages wind down between my fingers this is why digital reading. Isn't the same um, watching those pages that I'm like, there's, we're not going to get
1: everything that we need here. Yeah. And I've had a few people be like, but why? Um, and I've been like, you know what? It just felt like the right moment. Mm. And I can't really explain, uh, maybe other writers will get this as well. Sometimes you just feel like that's where they need to stop. And it sounds really woo-woo, but like
0: Mm.
1: it's, the characters kind of like reach their point and that's, that's as far as it can go. Um, But I have been reading a lot digitally actually um, recently, and there have been a few times I've been like, oh, is that it? Um, Because you get so absorbed that you want, you want more, but I actually think it's like more meaningful for me to be forced as a reader to kind of sit with those feelings and work it through myself without being told how to take the ending or told what happens, um, you know, next and what happens after that. So um, this is me trying to, uh, you know, retrospectively apply some kind of um, thinking to my ending when actually I think I like wrote the last sentence and it was like the end um, and didn't really like think about the reader experience until my editors <laughs> were like, maybe let's. Let's relook at that.
0: I, I think it's a good it's a good antidote to, um, you know, too much understanding of genre and narrative theory. You know, we don't we don't always want to know, or if we have an expectation, we want it subverted. I, I I wholeheartedly agree with everyone. Just destroying my understanding of literature.
1: I will also say that in the two big rewrites that I did, the one thing that did not change at all was the ending. Oh interesting
0: <laughs> thank you so much and thank you there that was a bit of a deep dive that often for people who listen to the podcast what we just talked about there is usually what happens after i do the little outro um and i i, I will have to i'll have to question whether that's um the radio listeners are going to be interested in in that deep dive stuff or maybe we'll just stick to the character stuff but Zoe, you've you've answered all the questions and you've been so generous with your time um I am speaking with Zoya Patel. We are discussing her new novel. It is called Once a Stranger. It is fabulous, lovely, so many questions, um, and Zoya's been so generous with her time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Zoya.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the chat.
0: Thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining Zoya. You are here on the Final Draft podcast. Zoya Patel's new book is Once a Stranger. It's out now from Hachette. The Final Draft podcast is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Do stay in touch with us. You'll find us on social media. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And uh, look, if you are enjoying the show, subscribe in your podcast app. It means a new episode. Well, they're coming out a couple of times a week. We have bonuses. I try to make it good value. If you are enjoying it, please give it a like, give it a share could I ask you to write a comment? Like, if, you're, if you've really enjoyed this, write a comment and tell us that. Better yet, telling other people that. It's a way to help people discover the podcast. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back with more incredible conversations with Australian writers uh, here on Final Draft. But till then, I hope you have a happy week of reading. Bye now.